Hello, and welcome to episode 204 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. And how's it going, Ian, on this rather slow week? Slow. I am so incredibly thankful. It has been a slow week. There have been no balloons. There have been no planes diving towards the ground and then climbing away as if nothing happened. There have been few, if any, incidents, thankfully. It's been a quiet week and I am so very glad after all that has happened already this month that that happened. Yeah. I mean, there was one incident this week. You you misidentified the panda flights. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's been nice hosting this podcast. It's been nice hosting this podcast. It's been nice working at Flight Raider 24. I shall take my leave. Of all the ways to to meet your end. Of all the ways to go out. I did, in fact. So there are four pandas leaving Japan and going to China. Never should have let them book their own air travel. I know. That's the problem. They sent three on one flight and they're sending one on another and I mixed them up and posted that on the internet. But points to the person on Twitter who called it just absolute pandemonium. I thought that was ah. very well done. Some nice wordplay. It was all meant to be. And and a good time was had by all. But other than that, yeah, a slow start to the week for the most part. We had some planes, trains, and automobiles with a flight by President Joe Biden on his travels to Ukraine. So that was interesting, a bit of plot thickening and detective work on the part of of folks trying to figure out how it was done and, and, and things like that. But other than that, not too much to start this week. Last week, some things did happen, and Jason and I will argue about one of those in a minute. I promise that will be a vigorous and spirited debate. But first, a very interesting thing happened at the end of January. Last month. That's the word I was looking for. The blocks of 30 days. That thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes 28, sometimes 30. (laughs) Yes. I'm counting on my knuckles, the old song about how many days the month has. Um, Anyway, two Alaska Airlines flights almost back to back departing Seattle. Both going to Hawaii. Both going to Hawaii, and and that's kind of important in a minute, suffered tail strikes on departure. One of them was a 737-900ER, and the other was a 737-MAX-9, both flying from Seattle to Hawaii and both suffering tail strikes. On the same runway. On the same runway. 16L. Leaving the same runway, not too far apart, within minutes of each other. And so Alaska did something pretty fascinating to me and really important. They stopped everything. They shut down the airline. Brett Payton, who was the on-duty director of operations for the airline, said, we're not departing any more flights. There is no way that two tail strikes within 15 minutes of each other is a normal occurrence. That just doesn't happen. Something's wrong. I don't even think it was 15 minutes, right? I mean, what I'm reading says about six minutes later after that incident. So let's see. So the first flight departed, let's see, 16, yeah, so not long at all, 1648 UTC and then 1653. So within 10 minutes. Yeah. That is astronomically unlikely to have two flights departing from the same airport on the same runway, both encountering tail strikes and really, really 
have to tip the hat to Alaska Airlines and the safety culture there and the operations to not just know that both of these flights experienced tail strikes moments after they happened, but to make that link that, okay, we've just had two in a few minutes. That is not normal. We need to shut everything down and figure out what happened and then solve that situation, figure out what it was and resume flights in 22 minutes. That is an exceptional example of safety prioritized over everything else. It's really good recognition that something was wrong, something they needed to fix, understand, and then possibly fix, or just, I guess, write off possibly as just a really unlikely coincidence. But this was just really, really stellar work all around in Alaska. Yeah. So first things first, the planes are okay. The passengers are okay. The crews are okay. They came back. They landed normally. The 737 MAX 9 and the 737 900ER both have tail skid plates and they absorbed all of the energy, thankfully, and, and both aircraft were able to be put back into service after an inspection. And the passengers made it to Hawaii with only a few hours delay. But what happened was is the takeoff performance calculation tool that is used by Alaska Airlines is called Dynamic Source. And the aircraft weight and balance data, how many people are aboard, how much cargo is aboard, how many bags are aboard, how much fuel, all of that fun stuff is plugged into this software. And then it spits out the takeoff performance data. So how much thrust the pilots should use to take off and trim values and things like that. And the idea is that using this software allows the aircraft to get off the ground as efficiently as possible while using the least amount of thrust because it uses the least amount of fuel and it saves wear and tear on the engines and saves fuel. In this particular instance, there was a bug in the software that was sending very, very, very underweight values to the airplane. And so I'm quoting from the Seattle Times article by Dominic Gates from last week, where he's quoting the Alaska pilots as saying there was a 20 to 30,000 pound error. So that's a lot of pounds. And that led to some seriously underperforming takeoff calculations. And so they had enough power to get off the ground, but it also led to the tail strikes. So they found the bug. They came up with a workaround so that they could continue operating flights. And that happened in about 20 minutes, as Jason mentioned, 22 minutes they were shut down for. And then they fixed the bug in the software and were able to no longer no longer have that issue. So good on Alaska for doing all of that and doing it so quickly. Yeah. There must have been a pretty glaring bug in the system there to be able to recognize that, fix it and patch it and, and resume flights in 22 minutes. That's quite something. I would can't accomplish anything at my company in 22 minutes, let alone identify <laughs> a bug in a flight safety critical mission like that and be able to patch it. So I'm sure there's a lot more to this story that we, we will not know. And, and why did it only impact Alaska and nobody else? Well, I'm sure the software is used by other airlines, but very very interesting situation that thankfully had a good outcome in this case. Yeah. And again, from Dominic Gates' article in the Seattle Times, which we'll put in the show notes, 
the software, he says the software had been tested over an extended period of time, but the bug was missed because it only presented when many aircraft at the same time were using the system. Well, so basically, a, it was rush hour and it broke. It's a good thing airlines don't operate on like a, a banked schedule or a whole bunch of flights that go out at once. Yeah. Yeah, that was sarcasm. That's exactly how airlines work. <laughs> They fixed the issue to get the aircraft moving in about 20 minutes. And then it says five hours later, the software was permanently fixed. So now they have a test for what happens when the software is under high load. Hmm. Don't really so understand that, how high load, more flights can mean the software just kicks out incredibly inaccurate data. But that's going to be a very, very pointed conversation with some software developer somewhere. I'm absolutely certain of it. So last week, there was what is now, I believe, the longest flight to nowhere. There have been some long ones, but this one may be the world record holder, hopefully ever. Oh, yeah. If this gets topped, I really hope it doesn't. So Air New Zealand was operating its Auckland to JFK service. And they operate to Terminal 1 at JFK. And what happened was is Jason ruined the terminal for everyone somehow. This is your fault, Jason. Mm -hmm. There was an electrical issue. A fire happened. So the terminal was closed for a few days. A lot of aircraft were affected in the initial kind of closure, which I'm still confused about because it sounds like they knew they weren't going to be able to use the terminal long before they actually told anybody they couldn't use the terminal. Yeah. Is that... Because I want to clear, yeah, the whole situation with JFK Terminal 1, which is like, if, if you've never been there, is like the oddball other miscellaneous international airline terminal at JFK. So it's this weird hodgepodge co-owned by Lufthansa, Jal, Korean, and Swiss, I feel like. I don't know, someone else. It's a group of airlines that doesn't make any sense, but it's this weird other terminal. They're knocking it down in a couple of years, rebuilding it. But what happened was there was an electrical fire, like Ian mentioned, the entire terminal just lost power. It was not operational. And unlike how many people on social media came to say, let's say, why couldn't they just go to other terminals? Well, it's JFK and there isn't, on a good day, there isn't a lot of spare capacity. There isn't a lot of gates on a good day at other terminals. So some of these aircraft had to turn around, some of them diverted, some of them went to Newark, some of them went to Boston or Washington, or even quite a few far out destinations. But Stewart. Stewart, yes. Norse Atlantic, who is definitely not Norwegian, pulled a plane straight out of the Norwegian playbook, which was divert to Stewart uh, north in the suburbs, like at least an hour north of New York, and, and have passengers check in at JFK, shuttle bus them up to Stewart, and operate them out of there. And it's actually a pretty elegant situation that they pulled off. But yeah. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey operates the airport itself, but the airport's terminals are all kind of self-governed little fiefdoms doing their own thing. They don't really cooperate with each other. They don't communicate. And what essentially happened was the terminal at some point declared that it was closed. It was not able to accept any inbound flights and flights that did land for a while ended up at hard stands or they scrambled to find other gate space. And at some point they issued a notum saying, Terminal 1 is closed, please go away. And a lot of airlines did. They diverted to other airports. But then there were a few, Korean and most noteworthy, of course, Air New Zealand decided, you know what? I don't want to deal with that. I'm going home. And 
Air New Zealand was already eight hours into its flight from Auckland to JFK, which is already one of the longest flights in the world, the longest in their network, for sure. And they decided to return all the way to Auckland instead of trying to get access to another terminal at JFK, which may or may not be possible, or diverting to another airport in its network, or at least in the US, let alone in New York. And, and instead, they diverted all the way back to Auckland for a 16-hour, five-minute flight to nowhere. Airtime. That is purely airtime. That does not include yeah. the time it took to board the aircraft, push back, take off, land, get back to the gate. So people were probably on this aircraft for close to 18 hours to go nowhere. Not ideal, but 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 a lot of people said our Twitter mentions were rife with why didn't they just land in New York anyway? Or why didn't they divert to Los Angeles? Or they were near-ish to Hawaii when they turned around. So why didn't they go to Hawaii? Good question. Or somewhere else. And so what the airline said, the airline's reasoning was diverting anywhere but returning to Auckland would put the aircraft, the crew, and the passengers – would actually be more inconvenient for all of that than for all of those things, people and things, than just returning to Auckland. Because basically what they said is that the aircraft would be out of position for multiple days. They would have multiple crews out of position for multiple days. And then the passengers, they were able to rebook them, all of them from Auckland, whereas they weren't sure they could rebook all of them from an outstation as quickly as they were able to rebook them from Auckland. Jason and I have, prior to recording over the past week or so, gone back and forth about this. And I'm not sure I've been able to convince Jason that nope. that I think what the airline did was the right thing. Nope. You have not convinced me I've not been able to. So, so why not? Why do you remain unconvinced? I am not saying what the airline did is wrong. I will not second guess their operations. But what I will say is that the pilots of this aircraft pleaded over ACARS, and we've seen the messages, they pleaded over ACARS with operations to continue to anywhere in the US, to Houston where they have operations, or Newark, or somewhere, somewhere to get those passengers literally anywhere else other than back to Auckland. So a bit of context that we haven't mentioned yet was Auckland and New Zealand in general had some really terrible floods leading up to the departure of this flight. And the prior flight of NZ2 was actually canceled. And this flight doesn't yeah. even operate daily. So people have possibly already been waiting up to more than half a week to get on a flight departing Auckland to New York. So some of these people are already quite a bit delayed. Sending them back to New Zealand on a 16-hour flight basically resets the clock for these people. And they have to be reaccommodated somehow on a route that only operates every other day at best. There is no alternative flight. Either they send them through LA or Houston or something. I just, it was the right call from an operational, from an airline operations point of view. From a passenger standpoint, it was the worst possible decision they could have made. They were not far from Hawaii. As a minimum, I would have landed in Honolulu, offloaded the passengers there, made them United's problem because they are a Star Alliance member. They could. I'm sure gotten most, if not every one of those people out on the many United flights out of Honolulu every day, because not everyone on that New Zealand flight was probably terminating in New York. I know for a fact there are plenty of people who connect onward from 
New York, which is kind of crazy to think about. You've just gotten off a 16-hour flight and you're going to go connect onward to somewhere. But Poughkeepsie. They, sure, Stewart. But <laughs> if not Honolulu, they could have gone to LA. They could have gone to Houston. They could have found somewhere in the New York area or the Northeast at least and shuttle the flight crew from the New York area to Boston or DC. It's not an impossibility. Also diverting to Hawaii, taking a 24-hour penalty for the crew to get some rest or eight hours, I guess, to get some rest, get back in the air. That's about the same amount of time it would have taken that aircraft to go all the way to New York, turn around in a few hours, and then go all the way back to Auckland. So I, I just don't understand how turning around and going back to Auckland was the best move. Maybe it was in the purest point of view of we need this airplane back as quickly as possible, but that airplane wasn't coming back immediately in the first place. So did they really need it back that quickly? I don't think so. All right. That's it. That's it from you. No rebuttal? No, no. I'm, I'm going to leave it there because it happened. The airline did its thing and I'm giving my point of view what the airline says and, and, and I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to let Jason make a very well-reasoned and dispassionate argument and I'm going to leave it there for the moment. And I'm going to ask everyone to email us at podcast at fr24.com. And I want to hear your thoughts as well. Did Air New Zealand do the right thing by returning to Auckland as quickly as possible? Or should they have continued on, landed somewhere and offloaded the passengers and gone from there? So podcast at fr24.com. Give us your thoughts. I'm keen to hear what our listeners think. Yeah. And again, not the only airline that did something along those lines. Korean also returned back to Seoul, though I think it was 12 hours. It was about a 13, yeah, 13, 13 12 hours. And 12 Still and change. Absolutely brutal. Terrible. But 16, I hope, 16 hours, I hope, is the longest unintentional flight to nowhere we will ever see because it's, it's going to yeah. be really hard to beat that. Yeah. I'm not really sure how. <sighs> I guess it would have to be like a Qantas flight. Yeah, I, at London some point though, that flight crosses the point of no return and it just can't get back to Auckland. Right. It's battling right. headwinds. So I don't know how there could be, at least for commercial airlines, how you could have a longer diversion. And hopefully no one will ever have to find that out because I just can't imagine the feeling of the passengers 16 hours into that flight knowing they've gone absolutely nowhere oh, and having man. to face it again for another 16 hours is just ugh. <laughs> oh yeah now i don't even think how that would be possible so a few weeks ago we talked about airlines in russia receiving permission to begin using their existing aircraft as spare parts repositories using spare parts from some of their aircraft to maintain their other aircraft. And this week, we get to talk about another step that Russian airlines are asking Russian regulators to greenlight, which is basically saying there's certain maintenance intervals for various tasks, and the airlines want to extend those intervals. So if it's 10,000 flight hours to inspect this particular part of the landing gear, Maybe it's 15 now. Maybe it's 20. And they're also looking for, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, alternative methods of compliance with airworthiness directives. 
So basically, if Boeing comes out tomorrow and says, we've got a problem with the 777-300ER, which is one of the airline types that is currently being operated by Russian Airlines, and the FAA says, you know what, we're going to issue an airworthiness directive that says, if you operate the 777-300ER, you got to fix this. Well, if it involves parts, the Russian Airlines can't get those parts, or they're going to have to figure out a way to get those parts. And so they're looking for alternative methods of compliance. Kind of an increasing slope on the slippery slope of operating aircraft for which you can't really maintain the fleet. Hey, none of that sounds great at all, does it? Nope. Nope. Sure doesn't. (laughs) To be clear, it is not unheard of or exceptional even for airlines to ask the FAA to increase the period of time between inspections of certain parts. And that does become, as parts become more reliable, the inspections of those parts can become more prolonged over time. But I don't don't think we have seen any US airlines that we want to just push the inspection cycles for everything out six months. And we're just going to figure out a different way to comply with an airworthiness directive. Some of these will be, of course, minor and almost barely worth talking about. But Like you said, Ian, if GE were to discover a problem with the GE90 that basically said you have to fix this or, I don't know, the engine is going to explode and and Russia has to figure out another way to go about fixing it, that is a very not good situation to be in. Which is not to say that that is extremely likely to happen, but at some point, there's going to be an airworthiness directive or there's going to be a maintenance interval where, okay, that plane just can't fly anymore. Yeah, well, think about the Pratt and Whitney 777 engines on the United 777-200ERs. Like, that was a pretty significant issue they were having. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of investigation went into fixing that aircraft and quite a number of hours to get it back in working order. But it's going to be a bit different for the Russian airlines, I guess. It'll have to be. Let's stick with Russia. And I want to hit on some interesting comments that Ben Smith of Air France KLM said during their 2022 earnings call that happened this week. There was an analyst that asked them about flying around Russia. So so Air France and KLM flights having to fly around Russia to get to to destinations in in China and Japan and, and places like that. And Ben Smith said something very interesting, that yes, they have to fly longer, up to three hours longer, while avoiding Russian airspace. But the interesting thing here is that the overflight fees that the airline was paying to Russia to use Russian airspace were so high that they've actually seen similar performance and it hasn't really affected the profitability of those flights. Yeah, that's kind of wild. That's crazy to me. Isn't it? Yeah. Russia has always been notorious for charging high overflight fees because they can. Russia's huge. So why not charge a lot? Where else are you going to fly? Well, what are people going to do? Fly around for three (laughs) hours? Yeah, these days. Yeah. I guess this math works while oil prices are low as they kind of are now and aircraft are more and more efficient. Like, Does this math work with a brand new A350? Probably. I guess it does. Would it have worked with a 747-200? Almost certainly not. So this is definitely very interesting. I'm not sure all airlines are in the same boat with this because some airlines have been very, very impacted. Like We've talked about Finnair in the past where they basically had to change their entire business model because of this. But for uh, Air France, KLM, it seems like it's more of a wash. 
the only downside, I guess, is that the, it, if it's three hours extra each way for these flights, that's six hours round trip that that aircraft is not available to do something else. And as Air New Zealand has taught us, that's very important for that airplane to be where it's needed at any time. Indeed, it is. So yeah, I, I just thought that was a, a very interesting interest from Ben Smith at AAA. But that could change at any moment. If oil it's prices, I mean, up. if the price of oil, yeah, exactly. If the price of oil goes up, then that comment becomes much different. Speaking of comments from airlines, Volaris is hopeful that Mexico will receive a Category 1 rating within six months from the FAA, which opens all kinds of doors to Volaris and – well, yeah, reopens all kinds of doors for Volaris and other airlines in Mexico. We've talked about this before in the context of both Mexico and I think Malaysia, I believe is the – I think so. Indonesia? Maybe, I think as well. Probably as well, yeah. And the idea here is that with a category one rating, Mexican airlines can open up new routes to the US and US airlines can add code shares to to Mexican airlines operating routes and, and all sorts of good fun stuff can happen because their safety rating from the FAA is at the the highest level. So interesting to hear them put a um, a time frame on it, given how much airlines or air framers putting timelines on things that the FAA is going to do has been looked down upon in recent history. But if they're saying six months, sure, why not? This is definitely dragged on a lot yeah. longer than I think anyone had suspected it would. So the FAA must have really identified some glaring issues in Mexico's aviation sector, let's say, because this this is everything from air traffic control to airports to everything in between. So there must have been some major issues at hand for it to take this long with a country that has so many airlines and so many routes operating between the US and Mexico. That's just, this is a major impact. I don't think anyone thought it'd be going on for quite this long. Yeah. The time frame here is just, I thought we would be done with this by now as well. Also this week, this was an interesting one that is just rather unfortunate, not nearly as long as the Air New Zealand flight, but a Japan Airlines flight that was flying from Tokyo to Fukuoka missed curfew. Oh, no. There was poor weather in Tokyo, and they had to do an aircraft swap, and so the plane took off late, and they couldn't make the 10 o'clock curfew, and then they didn't have enough fuel to divert all the way back to Tokyo straight away, so they had to land in Osaka. Then they had to switch the crew, and then they went all the way back to Tokyo. So not a long flight by any stretch of the imagination, but super annoying. So the curfew is 10 p.m., and at... 10 p.m., they made a loop near the airport, basically, but they were still at 15,000 feet. It's not like they were on final approach and the aircraft was like, no, no, or the air- airport was like, no, 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 we're closed. Go, go, go around and go away. It didn't quite come as close to that, but it, it's weird to me that they wouldn't, could they not fly a few, few knots faster to get there? I mean, yeah, apparently they needed prior written permission to break curfew in line. And if you're familiar with Japanese culture at all, they probably would have had the fax set in something. You probably can't do that from an A350. I don't think they come equipped with the fax machine. We should ask Airbus. Yeah, we should. I mean, if you pay Airbus enough, they will install it in that flight deck. Um, yeah, I guarantee they would. It's kind of disappointing that the airport wouldn't have let them land if they were already in route and close. Because Even here, LaGuardia has quote unquote, a curfew. It's not a real curfew, but 
typically, I think it's midnight between April and September or something. There's not supposed to be any flight operations past midnight, but that is frequently these days suspended due to weather. So we are aware that weather happens here in the Northeast. And if a flight is 40 minutes late, even two hours late, if there's a major weather event, they're not going to say, go away, go to JFK. They'll let that flight land and, and not even exceptional circumstances. So kind of odd that they wouldn't allow it in this case since it did seem to be weather based. But again, really feel bad for those passengers to make a a three segment flight, I guess, that that ended up going nowhere. Or I guess it was yeah. two since they didn't land initially. But at least Jal found a crew in Osaka in the middle of the night to get them back to Tokyo. That's true. That's true. They did make it back to Tokyo. They got put up on hotels and, and went the next day. But just not a great week for flights to nowhere. No. The New York Times has discovered sustainable aviation fuel. Hey, that's great. I'm glad to see that they've finally written about it. They had a, a piece out today and it mostly focuses on United and it talks about how there's you know not enough SAF to go around and, and all of those things. Yeah, because United's going to put it all in their supersonic little thing. Well, that's where it's really interesting to me because they have a quote from United CEO Scott Kirby. And Kirby says, quote, I am genuinely a nerd about climate change. The implications are so dramatic, and there are all these tipping points that once you hit them, they're effectively irreversible, unquote. To Jason's point, the conversation about SAF usage, and I think it's a very valuable conversation, one that we've had quite a few times and one we keep coming back to, and I'm sure we'll revisit it more deeply once again as it becomes more available and more airlines start using it for more of their flights. However, I'm still having a great bit of difficulty squaring away the fact that United is going, says it is going to purchase these boom aircraft and use them 100% on sustainable aviation fuel. And then Scott Kirby says this, that he's a, a genuine nerd about climate change and there are tipping points that are effectively- Yeah. Well, well, he's definitely, Scott Kirby has definitely been outspoken in the past about how carbon offsets are, are nonsense and they are not a solution. They are barely even a band-aid on the problem. And United doesn't really, I, not like a lot of other airlines, they don't offer that in the booking path. So I do agree that of most airline CEOs, Scott Kirby has been the most vocal about how what the industry is doing now. Is, I'm not disagreeing with that. Yeah, then how do you square that with, yeah. well, well, SAF is really limited, but what we're going to do is take our limited supply and, and burn the hell out of it in a supersonic aircraft that just nobody needs at four times the rate of a conventional aircraft. So all that is to say is that I'm glad the New York Times is taking an interest in the issue, but the piece to me, it, it didn't even really scratch any of the surfaces here beyond just kind of a, a general overview. So, so a good start, but let's catch up. We had reserved big space in the show. We were going to make this like a four-hour-long podcast because Qantas was unveiling its Project Sunrise premium cabins today. There was a lot of will they, won't they about what things were going to look like. Was this going to be an incredibly you know revolutionary? product? And the answer is, nope. Looks like a business class seat. Yeah. So Qantas's Project Sunrise A350-1000s, Airbus won the, the, I guess, the Project Sunrise competition here for these aircraft that are going to fly between Sydney, or is it Perth? No, Sydney and New York, like very, very long flights that hopefully don't return to Sydney and uh, have right. an 18-hour diversion. But they revealed the 
I guess the concepts or, or the renderings of the first and business class seats, which are fine, nothing special. First class looks extremely nice in that it's a seat with a bed side by side, but also nothing new. We saw Lufthansa do that in its old, old first class, which they don't even have anymore. Yeah. I love the concept, but there's a bed aside from the seat so that there's two separate places that it's not a seat that converts to a bed though it looks like it can do both actually and then a business class that just looks like any other business class that you'd find on it almost looks like the ll seat actually the the, the same kind of united polaris ll just staggered one two one seat there's a door that doesn't really add any value but adds weight to the aircraft there's nothing really special it is a low-density aircraft. There are only 238 seats, so that, that's quite a low number for an A350-1000. Um, but there were really no details announced for most of the people, 40 people in premium economy and 140 in regular economy, really no details about what will be back there. And it's not like we saw anything that Air New Zealand announced where they'll have those, I don't remember the marketing term for it, but those kind of- Sky nest. Sky nest, where you'll, where economy passengers will be able to rent like a bunk bed for an hour or a couple hours to go get some rest. Qantas didn't announce anything like that. And these flights will be even longer. So really disappointing that maybe they have something up their sleeves in the future because they only revealed the details of business and, and, and first class, but there's really- Nothing that stands out that's unique or special about these aircraft. I would love, of course, to fly Qantas first class on these aircraft because it looks phenomenal. But again, compared to what is modern day first class on new aircraft, it is really nothing unique. A little disappointed. Yeah. Not that I have, you know, Qantas first class booking anytime soon. (laughs) I am not personally disappointed because I I will never book something like that on my own dime. I mean, I'm flying to Japan in less than two weeks in in regular old economy, but somebody is probably very disappointed, someone who has a lot of money. (laughs) To end the show, I want to follow up on some listener feedback that we've had over the past couple episodes. One is that our discussion, a listener pointed out, two listeners pointed out, thankfully, about our discussion about the 25-hour cockpit voice recorder standard and and how Jason and I have both been lamenting its non-availability in the US. We should mention that we are talking about US specifically. European Union Aviation Safety Agency has in fact mandated since 2000 that this be available. So it exists. The technology is there. What we're arguing for is that the US should mandate it. And I think that would go a long way towards making things better on that front. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But yes, Yasa has already has already mandated that. And then we got an in-depth discussion from one listener about Air India's aircraft order. And some of the things they point out are, I think, rather helpful to keep in mind when we're discussing the massive letters of intent that Air India signed with Airbus and Boeing, one of which is the Tata Group's other businesses involve joint ventures and manufacturing for both Boeing and Airbus, including some military stuff that goes to the Indian Armed Forces, as well as some HR and finance jobs that Boeing has outsourced to a Tata-owned company in India. 
There's also the fact that no one really knows for sure what's going to happen with all of the Air India and Tata-owned sub-branded airlines. So you've got Air India, Air India Express, Vistara, Air Asia India, and there's a mix of full-service carriers, there's a mix of low-cost carriers, and what's going to happen with all of those consolidations as things start to move. What we talked about, I think last week, is as things start to move in into kind of an Air India and an Air India Express dichotomy. Those are some of the other things to keep in mind. And this particular listener also questions why they ordered the 777X. That one, I don't have any answer for you on. Nope. It'll be interesting to see if they ever take delivery of them. I'm guessing no, but time will tell. Time will tell. And then I messed up publicly at the top of the show. Jason messed up publicly in the last episode. He misspoke and deeply regrets it that he said Flybe was operating ATRs when in fact everyone knows they were operating Dash 8s. I think we had just come off of a discussion about ATRs. So so I think that's where Jason's brain was. We don't know turboprops here in the US. I'm sorry. They're all the same to me. (laughs) We can all forgive him, right? Right. Okay. That's the show. We messed up and we have apologized and we hope, dear listeners, that you will forgive us because I guarantee we'll we'll mess up more in the future. But until we have another chance to mess up, I will say that this has been episode 204 of AvTalk and that I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Urbanowitz. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 